This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. In 2005, you're at the U.S. Open against Andre Agassi. You go out to a two-sets-to-nothing lead. The tennis was a ridiculously high level, and then Andre stepped it up even more. It lived up to the hype. Game Time with Boomer Esiason. This week's guest is the Tennis Channel's lead analyst, Davis and Hopman Cup winner, James Blake. Presented by Geico. Our guest today is a former top five tennis star and author of two New York Times bestselling books. He's also a tournament director and a TV tennis commentator. It is my pleasure to welcome James Blake. James, welcome to Game Time. Much appreciated. Yeah, you're about as busy as I am these days. It doesn't seem like there's a, a day of rest for you. You're, you've got your fingers into so many things. The first thing I really wanted to talk to you about is going through COVID. Last year at the Miami Open, right after the Super Bowl, I remember seeing you give an interview about how difficult it was going to be to get the stadium ready to host the Miami Open, how excited you were. But then you guys had to cancel. You're the one who had to send out the letter saying yeah. that we can't have this, this, this tournament. How difficult was that for you as tournament director sending out that letter? Yeah, I mean, how, how crazy is it that that's what I was worried about last year at this time was uh, the, redoing the the stadium because of the Super Bowl. That that was my big issue, and I, I was I was busy. I felt like I was busy then, and it was a little crazy to to deal with those logistics. And a year later, to think about that, if that was on the top of my priority list, I'd be I'd be jumping up and down and excited. But um, you know what's what's gone on? What went on last year? We felt like we made the responsible decision. I think um, history proved us right with how quickly the virus uh, did get out of control at that time, because that was when it was still very new and we were still learning and the cases were um, were still very um, sort of in the infancy stages. So we're uh, we made the right decision there. And now we're just doing everything we can to be safe this year. Do you like the TV side of it? Do you like actually analyzing these uh, these tournaments? I do. I, I like, um, you know, I like the, the fact that I've got these roles where I'm using the knowledge that I learned when I was on tour, because, you know, as well as anyone, we can't play forever. We can't do what we were trained to do forever. So um, you think about the things that you learned and how you can use those, how you can help the sport, how you can help and still be a part of it. And so that with the commentary and with the, being a torrent director, I feel like I can have a, a voice and I can really do something that, that hopefully is positive in the sport. Um, and as far as the, the commentary, I, I love doing it because I really like the people I've gotten to know and gotten to work with. And that makes such a difference. Uh, that's one of the things I learned early on in, in, uh, in my career on, in commentary is uh, if you're working with the right producers, you're working with the right other talent on, on, on uh, air, 
it makes such a big difference. And, and I've been lucky enough to be, to be with some great people. Welcome back to Game Time. When he was a junior player, James Blake wrote, another kid told me he felt sorry for me because of my genealogy, predicting I'd be hated by blacks and whites. I told my mother, she replied, that she didn't see why I wouldn't be loved by both communities. So James, uh, how difficult was it uh, growing up in a biracial family? And did you see your mother's side of uh, the, the point or did you realize the other aspect, the ugliness of it? Yeah, I saw my mother's side. That, that was when I was about 10 or 11 years old. So I was very naive and, and young. Um, and I was born in New York and probably learned to play a little bit in Harlem, where it's 95 to 98% minority community. And then I moved to Fairfield, Connecticut, that's probably 95 to 98% white. Um, and so I was living sort of in both worlds. And at that age, you don't see the negative. You don't see all the downside to it. So I felt comfortable. Um, and I felt like I had friends in every community and I, I loved that feeling. And I think that actually shaped me for, for trying to feel that same way uh, as I got older, that I can be accepted in, in any situation. And it took, it took a, lot of, um, a lot of other people and outside influences to show me the negative side. And um, that's unfortunate, but it is a part of our world today that there are so many that want to see the negatives in, in every situation. And, and so many people that don't have parents like my parents that taught me about um, being accepted and treating people with respect and, and everyone with respect. And so um, I felt lucky to have my family the way they were. You know, tennis, usually you are on the fast track and you decided to deviate from that and go to Harvard. Any regrets doing what you did and the way it went and the way it played out? No, um, I, I needed that. I, when I went to college, I, I showed up at 17 years old, about 150, 155 pounds. So I don't think I was ready physically for the rigors of the tour at that point. And mentally, I think it was a great bridge. You know, you're, you're dependent on your parents when you're still at home. You go off to college and you still have some sort of a schedule. You got practice at a certain time. You, you set up your own classes, but you got, you know, you have to be at class. You got to get your work done. Some things are, are, are scheduled for you. Some things you have to do on your own. And then that sets you up. And for me, it prepared me for going on tour where everything's on your own. If you don't want to go to practice. You don't have to go to practice. You have to figure out you're the one that's paying your coach. So you're the one that's really in charge. You have to be running basically a small business at 19 years old when I turned pro. So um, I think those two years were really, really valuable for me as growing up as a person. You get to go through that freshman year where you're the one carrying the bags. You're the one getting the Gatorades. You're the one doing all those kind of things. And and it definitely humbles you. And I appreciated that. Then I like to consider myself as one of the, you know, the Harvard dropouts like Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates. <laughs> I like to just consider, you know, throw myself into that category and, and see if I can have the same same level of success. And uh, I'm, I'm waiting for one day for us all to pool our money and just kind of call it the average, but um, that hasn't <laughs> happened yet. I was going to ask you the difference between the college programs, the tennis programs, and what it takes to become a tour member and to become a pro, because we're seeing Jenny Brady do that. You know, she went to UCLA yeah. and now all of a sudden she's becoming a top flight tennis player of her own right. Uh, what's yeah. the gap between college and the pros? Well, it's huge. The gap between any level tennis and the pros is uh, I've told plenty of people that are going to college or turning pro that that's the biggest jump you'll ever make in, uh, in the sport because the pros, it's just a different level. They're doing everything they can to be successful in that one thing. This is their job. So this is 24 seven what they're doing. And they'll show you that, you know, when I turned pro after college, it took me two years to, to get up to really that level um, because I, I think it, it was just such a different aspect of, of my life that I had to be totally and completely um, engrossed with the sport. And then I got on the pro tour and they humbled me really quickly. They made <laughs> me see that there's a different level and I need to step up my game even from where I was, where I thought I was the hardest worker in college. 
um, to now I need to, to have a whole nother gear to get to, to that level on the tour. Well, if it makes you feel any better, they did that to us in football as well. So we had to learn the hard way. In May 2004, our guest James Blake was practicing on a slippery clay court in Rome. Chasing a drop shot, he crashed into a net post and fractured his vertebrae. It was an injury so severe there was concern whether Blake would be able to walk again, let alone resume his tennis career. And I got to believe, James, that had to be one of the most frightening times in your life, not knowing what your future held after that injury. That was extremely, extremely uh, uh, tough time for me right then. That was uh, really scary. I, you know, I hit the net post and crashed into it, and um, then everything went through my mind. I mean, first of all, there's just the intense pain, but then is my career over? Am I going to be able to be a normal person, a normal adult from now on, or will this have that kind of effect to my competitive side saying, nope, I'm going to be fine. I think this is just going to be a bruise. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be back to play the French Open in three weeks, and I'm going to be fine. I was 24 years old, so I felt like I was going to be invincible. And, you know, all those thoughts went through my mind. And then um, I still um, talk about the fact that that actually was the best thing that ever happened to me that year uh, because I, I went home and ended up being a fractured vertebrae. Um, but it was one that recovered relatively quickly. I was back on the court in two months after that, I think. And um, But it got me home. And it, it, Aside from dealing with the physical pain, I was home for, that was the last six weeks of my dad's life. And um, if it wasn't for that injury, I don't think I would have gone home and he would have let me come home to, uh, to see him and to be with him during that, that difficult time. Yeah, I was going to ask you, your dad passed away in 2004, stomach cancer. And what were the last few weeks like with him and your, your discussions with him? And what did you take from those? You know, my dad was not... Um, one of those people that's extremely emotional. We weren't the the family that's, you know, throwing out I love yous all the time and being extremely uh, um, outgoing. But those last six weeks, we were able to say a lot of the things that hadn't been said before. Um, and I, I can't, I can't even think about what it would have been like without that. So I feel extremely lucky to have that time to, to spend that, uh, spend those days while my dad was was stuck inside and, and I was stuck inside. I was recovering as he was getting worse. But um, we were both um, sort of stuck together and it was um, it was so valuable and that's why that you know breaking my neck was the best thing that ever happened to me because I spent that time just talking about growing up talking about all the things my dad did and you know my dad was extremely strict and um, those times were the times we talked about why he was so strict and what the reasoning was behind it and how it was all because he cared so much about us about me and my brother and and what he did for us and um, I always had tons of respect for him. I always was, was impressed with what he did, but just spending those last few weeks with him, it gave me a, a newfound respect for him. And, um, you know, I just do everything I can to, to be as good a dad as he, he was. And I, I can't even come close, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying. And uh, he was an inspiration to me always. It's well said. I feel the same way about my dad and the memories we had together as well. Uh, I mean, this year was like a year you just want to wipe away from your history, but ultimately you write a book, Breaking Back, and this is about you overcoming all of this adversity in your life. I just want to reflect back one more time on 2005 because we just talked about 2004 and all the things that you had happened to you in your life. And 2005, you're at the U.S. Open. I was at this match against Andre Agassi. You, you go out to a two sets to nothing lead, and it was incredible. I, the fans were insane. You had two Americans there. You had Andre Agassi playing the role of Tom Brady. You playing the role of Patrick Mahomes. It was crazy. 
And I remember just how intense it was. And all of a sudden, Andre started coming back. And we, you know, there, you know, you want to see more tennis. You know, yeah. I think that if you would have won that thing three sets to none, nobody would be talking about it to this day. But because it happened the way it did happen, uh, it maybe is something that you could reflect on and just give tennis fans out there what you were feeling like. Because I didn't know whether to cry for you or to cheer for Andre, to be honest with you. Yeah, and that's, um, you know, it is interesting because I still get asked about it a ton nowadays. And, and you're right, if I had won that in three straight, I don't think a lot of people would have remembered it as much unless I had gone on to win the U.S. Open. But the way it happened, it, it lived up to the hype. There was a lot of hype. I mean, I love the fact that you just compared me to Patrick Mahomes. I'll take that any day. <laughs> of the week. But I, I, was the, I was coming back from injury, illness. I was a wild card. I wasn't even ranked in the top 100 at the time. Um, Andre was possibly, was, it, was this going to be his last U.S. Open or is he going to play one more? He was getting towards the end of his career. And um, so one of the most beloved tennis players ever um, and Andre. And I'm, I'm this young upstart and comeback story. So a lot of times that doesn't live up to the hype. So if I'd won it in three straight, it wouldn't have really lived up to the hype for that kind of a match, even though I felt like the tennis was a ridiculously high level. And then Andre stepped it up even more coming back. And then, like you said, that fans are cheering for more tennis. So no matter how beloved you are, even if, if Andre had won those first two sets, they'd be going crazy for me to come back too. And then, uh, and I think a lot of people are in the situation you were in, um, in the tiebreaker in the fifth set, who do we want to win? You know, both these guys are great stories. We want, we want this match to keep going. And I think Andre said it best that night that tennis was the winner tonight. At the time, I was furious. I was, you know, I wanted to win. I'm a competitor. I wanted to win those last couple points. And um, I think it put it in perspective. I, I actually texted or, or emailed one of my buddies after the match. I said, how come one of those matches doesn't go my way? And he responded quickly. What do you mean one of those type of matches? I've never seen a match like that. There aren't <laughs> other like that. You right. know, that was a time thing. That was just incredible. And it made me realize that it was more special than even I recognized um, at the time when I was in it. Yeah, I was very lucky to be there, to be honest, to see it in person because it left uh, a memory that will never that will never fade for me. So 10 years later, you come back to New York. This incident happens in the front of the Hyatt, midtown Manhattan, middle of the day, plainclothes officer comes and basically takes you to the ground. I don't know what that's like. I don't know how hard that is to deal with, especially when it's happening to you and you have no idea why it's happening to you. But the one thing I do remember initially after that were the interviews that you gave and how graceful you were and how you said in a lot of those interviews, 95% of the police officers do great work and are great people. It's the bad pe the guys that we're trying to get rid of. And I wanna make my voice heard because I have a platform and you have continued to use this platform. Yeah, and it's funny, you remember me saying that, but I remember when I did say something like that, I get hatred out of a lot of people saying, oh, you're just hating cops. You, they, they do such hard work. They're, they're working for you. They're public servants. And I feel like I, I can't say it any more clearly that I'm, I'm respectful of the ones that do the job the right way. I believe they're heroes. I, I believe hero is a term that's used way too uh, frivolously when it comes to athletes. Um, people that are putting their life on the line are the ones that deserve to be called heroes. But with that, I still have to say, we have to hold those accountable that are not doing the job the right way. And that officer that did that to me was not doing the job the right way. It was his fifth offense of doing something like this. One of them, including breaking a guy's jaw, all the African-American men. Um, this wasn't someone that was just made one mistake in his career. So to me, that's not being held accountable. When you're given the opportunity or you're given the power of having lethal force, of being able to take someone down in that way, of being able to, to make instant decisions that, that could be life altering or life ending decisions. 
um, you need to be accountable for those actions. And so um, that was what I was always pushing for. That's what I'm still pushing for is the accountability when some of these officers aren't doing the job the right way. And I wish more of those those ones that are doing it the right way would speak up even more so. Would be a little bit more vocal and a little more adamant about getting rid of those because I, I said then and I'll say it now like that that can affect the ones that are doing the job the right way. It can make their job more difficult because for me right now I'm going to be more hesitant when a cop approaches me, and that's going to make their job more more difficult because you don't want a tense suspect. You don't want someone that's having an interaction with you that's that's nervous, that's you know that may be twitchy, that may be scared for their life. Um, so it, it makes their job that when they're doing the job the right way, it makes their job more difficult. And so I would think they would be the ones who would speak up most loud, uh, the loudest, but it doesn't seem like that's happening. So that's, that to me is troubling. And the accountability thing is just the, the guy that did that to me lost five vacation days. And it took me two years of fighting to get that for him to lose five vacation days, um, for his fifth offense of this. It's, it's just. To me, that's not uh, that's not really the, the punishment that should fit the crime. Welcome back with James Blake. All right, James, let's let's get into this. You know, Tom Brady just won his seventh Super Bowl, an incredible feat at, at his age. And, you know, we got three great tennis players that are like hanging on and just don't they don't want to go anywhere. Right. I mean, they just keep winning tournaments. Uh, they are the faces of your sport. And in your eyes of the three top three players, uh, that have left the legacy already, who is the best of the three? Well, if you're going with the big three in, in, in men's tennis, you got Roger, Novak, and, and Rafa. Um, I, 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 I hesitate to not add in, in this generation that it's Serena, but I mean, we could talk about that another time because Serena's uh, 23 Grand Slams in the same era of these guys that are talking about 20, 20, and 18 with Roger, Rafa, and Novak. But for the big three for men, um, to address your question, it's it's crazy because when I was playing, I think Roger was the greatest. I think he was the most dominant player I ever played against, I ever saw. Um, but Novak is creeping up and, and catching those records. And I think by the end of it, with the way Novak is playing and as healthy as he is right now, I think he's going to end up um, at the end of their all of their careers, which we never know when it's going to be because we thought yeah. all of them probably would have been retired by now. Um, I think it'll be Novak that holds all the titles. He's just passed Roger for most weeks at number one. Um, so he'll hold that record, uh, at the end of his career. And I think he's going to get past 20 grand slams. And, um, I think Rafa might get another French open or two, and we'll see if he gets to 21, 22, 23, but I think Novak's going to pass them all. These guys have been playing on the, uh, on the tour for so long, yet they still bring it every time they step on the court. I mean, how do we explain this? It's incredible what they're doing. Yeah, similarly, I, I felt like I took great care of myself. My body just started shutting down. I was 33 when I retired, and I felt like I got a lot out of my body. And these guys are playing 39 years old for Roger. and um, They're doing a great job of taking care of themselves. They're focusing so much more on recovery. Uh, they're really focusing on tailoring their schedule, making sure they only play the events that they're going to be healthy for, they're going to be ready for. Um, but I would have thought all of them would have been retired by now. So it's, it is impressive. I don't know what, what's in store for these guys now. It, it, it's really amazing to be playing at this level because like you said, they started at 15 years old and most of them, all three of them have had a target on their back for almost their entire career. They're the one that's uh, being uh, targeted. They're the ones that, that everyone's going after. Everyone wants their titles. Everyone wants what, what they have. You're the one that's on top uh, when it comes to Roger, Rafa and Novak. And everyone's gunning for that. And that's got to be a difficult feeling to have. And, and so many players have crumbled under that pressure. And these guys have just risen to the challenge time and time again. It, it takes absolutely special and unique people. When I retired, I thought Pete Sampras' record of 14 Grand Slams was going to be difficult for anyone to ever catch. 
And now three guys have just blown past that. It, it, it's a golden era that we're living in to see these guys this good. And by the way, James, you know, you've risen to the occasion many, uh, many opportunities that you've had. And also, I do agree with you. Serena is on a whole nother planet. That's a whole nother show. Yeah. And she deserves probably about five to six hours discussing everything that she's accomplished. So I, I can't uh, tell you how much I appreciate you coming on today. And thanks for everybody out there joining us today. And to all of you for watching, I'm Boomer Esiason, and I'll see you again soon right here on Game Time. Yeah.